What's not to like about a lightly populated group of rugged islands off the northern tip of Scotland? Well, just be prepared for the weather to get your attention. If you like wild weather and biblical type of rain and, and storms, then Orkney is the place for you. Kinlay Francis tells us what he loves about living in Orkney. Urban planner Jeff Speck suggests that designing a city should be a lot like designing a home. It's meant to be for people. We like to make our streets as outdoor living rooms. And what does that mean? It means they have good edges. It means they really hold you comfortably. Coming up, he explains how some cities are becoming better places to walk by making motorists share space with everybody else. Or just keep on walking. Historian Anthony Satin reminds us how nomads have shaped our world for centuries. The one constant is that they keep on doing what they've always done, and that is moving around. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What kind of world do you want to live in? In just a bit, a city planner tells us what he's been learning from cities in Europe that can help make American cities more enjoyable places to walk around and explore. We'll also look at how nomads from long ago shaped the world we live in today and the challenges that nomadic communities are still tackling. Let's start the hour in a part of Scotland that lies beyond the usual tourist routes. A few years ago, I was heading to Edinburgh for perhaps the 20th time to update the Edinburgh chapter in my Scotland guidebook. And for some reason, I decided, rather than spend three more days in a city I already knew and loved, why not go to someplace entirely new? A place where very few Americans venture at the very north end of Scotland. So instead of Edinburgh, I ventured to Orkney. And I was so glad I did. My guide was Kinley Francis, and he runs a company called Orkney Uncovered. And today, Kinley joins us to share his expertise on his homeland, Orkney. Kinley, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you very much, Rick. It's, uh, it's great being online with you. Thank you for, for asking me to join you. Yeah. First of all, there's a little confusion about the name. Is it the Orkneys, the Orkney Islands, or, or what? Yeah, there's, uh, there's several ways of saying it, but uh, a lot of people think it's the Orkneys. That's a no-no here in the far north. The Orkney Islands is fine, but it's just known as the 70 Islands as a group. It's just known as Orkney. Orkney. So we'd say, I'm going to Orkney. And the people there... Not really Scottish. What, what is the mix of the ethnicity there in Orkney? Yeah, so we were um, once part of Scandinavia, and um, in 1468 we were given up as part of a marriage dowry between King Christian I of Denmark and uh, James III of Scotland. Wait a minute, 500 years ago Norway gave you away as a wedding present? Yeah, it's very unfortunate for us because we did not actually want to be part of Scotland. We wanted to stay with Norway. So, uh, yes, we've got a very strong... Viking and, and Norse bloodline. So uh, we speak uh, English, Norwegian, and Danish up here, uh, no Gaelic. It's a fascinating thing because you're just a little stone's throw away from uh, Scotland and the mainland of Britain, but you really have those strong Norwegian roots in Orkney. Now, there's a lot of islands. I think there's like 70 islands and 25,000 people, but one island really dominates, right? Yes, that's right. So the, the main island is uh, called Mainland, just to confuse the matter. So Wait a minute, the main island is called Mainland? <laughs> right, yeah. So it's called Mainland. So when we here in Orkney, we talk about how we're going on holiday. Some of the islanders off the main island say we're going to Mainland for the day. So it's not Mainland Scotland, it's Mainland Orkney, just known as Mainland. Wow. <laughs> well, that's great. And then the main city in Orkney, tell us about the, the major city, because it must dominate Orkney. 
Yes, it's um, it's called Kirkwall, and it means church on the bay in Old Norse. It's actually pronounced Korkivara in Old Norse. And so it's a church on the bay, and it actually relates to an old church from the 11th century, but we also have dominating the skyline, St. Magnus Cathedral, uh, which is the most northerly cathedral in the United Kingdom and was built by the Norse in the 12th century. And you were part of the parish of Trondheim in Norway at that time, 800 years ago. Yes, that's correct. Yes, we were. We were um, a very powerful uh, place. We still are today. We have a very good economy, but Kirkwall is a a very well-looked-after um, city, has about 8,000 people, and uh, the economy and, and employment is very high. Kinley, how long has your family been Orcadian? Uh, my family have been in the Orkney Islands uh, since 1990, and uh, to be classed as an Orcadian, you need to be born in Orkney. My son, Benjamin, uh, was born in Orkney. Okay. So if you're raising a kid in Orkney, I'm just curious, what would his favorite sports be? What what does he enjoy from a sports point of view? Okay, so this might uh, this might surprise some people, but one of the, the big sports here in Orkney is martial arts. Uh, and my son Benjamin is big into kickboxing. Okay. Uh, he also loves outdoor adventure, climbing and hill walking. I've tried to get him into the sea, but he is not having any of it. It's too cold for for swimming. But anything outdoors, adventure, athletics, different sports, and mainly kickboxing. Kinley, speaking more about your, your beautiful son, Benjamin, what's your biggest concern as a parent of an eight-year-old boy growing up in the big town of Orkney? I, I think that the biggest concern for me is the fact that it's such an innocent place, Orkney. Um, there's no crime. It's, it's very easy for children to go out and play you know, just by themselves in the parks and so on. There is no real concern at all for children, uh, maybe when they go down to the city. Uh, and for Benjamin, it's the fact there's no McDonald's and no Burger yeah, King and no right. KFC. What is the big city for you? Is it Edinburgh or, or Inverness? Yeah, biggest city closest to us is Aberdeen, and uh, Inverness is close by as well. They're both within, within about 150 miles south of Orkney. The biggest city we go to, though, is Edinburgh normally. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Orkney native Kinley Francis. He has a particular passion for the geology and history of this group of remote islands, and he shares his passion on tours for his company, Orkney Uncovered. Kinley's website is orkneyuncovered.co.uk. In Orkney, it's mostly one-laid roads with turnouts, right? So if there's a car approaching, you just leap for the nearest turnout where there's a little fat part in the road where it's two lanes for about 100 yards, and then you carry on. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, the turnouts are quite funny, actually, because many people don't understand what a turnout is or a lay-by or a passing place, as we call them. And there's an unwritten rule in the Orkney and Shetland Islands as well, actually, that the bigger vehicle wins the race. So I always end up being face-to-face with a tractor. So I'm always in the turnout. Hey, what are the, I'm curious about the political issues because uh, you're in a community of 25,000 people in Orkney. We've got Britain, we've got Scotland, we've got Brexit, you know, we've got uh, North Sea oil and gas. What are the big issues? What's your orientation? Are you more friendly with Edinburgh or more friendly with London? Yeah, I mean, personally for myself, I, I like to be part of Great Britain. Uh, the Orkney and Shetland Islands, particularly Orkney, is, is a royalist county. And it was dates all the way back to the 17th century when Oliver Cromwell failed to take us over as part of a military campaign because we were royalists. Uh, but we are very much geared towards the United Kingdom and the government. 
Okay, so um, you'll stand by London. You don't want any of this uh, separation business then? No, I, I personally, I don't. I mean, there are there are people in every county within Scotland that want separation, but... Because if Scotland succeeded in pulling away from England, uh, you'd have to go with them politically. Well, there is that question. Now, here in Orkney and Shetland, there's already the agreement, perhaps, in the pipeline that if this ever happens then uh, Norway will bring us back. So we can't oh. go back to Scandinavia. Isn't yeah, so. And would that be a, a referendum of the people of Orkney that could decide that? Yeah, I think it's already in the pipeline with the Orkney Islands Council, the people who run the local governments up here. But yes, I think there was a, if that was to happen, an overwhelming majority vote would go back to, to Norway. Fascinating. Thank you for that insight. Now, when I landed in Orkney, I was just impressed by how treeless the island was. It was windy, gentle fields, rolling hills, and pretty bald. You know, cows, no stoplights. Uh, Beaches were like pneumonia zones. I mean, there were beautiful beaches, but if you went down there, you just would start shivering in a sparse population. Uh, You know, when, when people grow a garden, they do it behind stone walls so it doesn't get blown apart. Fill those blanks in for us if you're exploring your, your island. What are you going to find? Yeah, well, one thing you need to explore in the island is you need to remember to wear layers. It's not about what you're wearing, it's how many layers you've got on. And uh, we are, are blown to bits by the North Atlantic and the North Sea. A lot of people talk about how, you know, southern England, after a 40-mile-an-hour wind, has to be evacuated. Uh, if you add on 100 miles an hour, you've got the Orkney Islands, and no one's blinking an eye. We're a very treeless island, and that's because of the storm force weather we get from the North Atlantic, from the prevailing westerly. So whenever you guys in the United States get a, a really bad storm on the East Coast, we're watching the National Hurricane Service that you've got. And as soon as it leaves your shores, we've got an eye on that coming in towards us. But uh, it's, it's an incredible, wild, rugged location. And if you like wild weather and biblical type of rain and, and storms, then Orkney is the place for you. Kinlay Francis provides private tours of the adventure trails and historical sites of Orkney, dating back to the Bronze, Iron, and the Stone Ages. His home base is in Kirkwall, and his website is orkneyuncovered.co.uk. Kidley, of course, this is a travel show, and Orkney has its sights. Boy, there's a lot to see, and it's fascinating because much of it is World War I and World War II history, and much of it is megalithic from the Stone Age, like Stonehenge, that kind of thing. Give us a quick review of, first of all, the 20th century military importance of Orkney. Uh, first and foremost, our, our most social uh, history, our, our, our history at the moment, which most people in Orkney relate to, is the First World War and the Second World War. Uh, within the Orkney Islands, you've got one of the world's largest natural harbours. It's called Scapa Flow. It was named by the Vikings. It means sword water. And it's an area where the British Grand Fleet was in the First World War and the Home Fleet in the Second World War. So it was a main anchorage for our battleships. And so there was tens of thousands of personnel based here during the First and Second World War. Strategic importance, There's a, there were some battles in the bay. Churchill came along and, and made his barriers to help fortify Correct. it. And then one thing I learned from you, Kinley, on my visit, there were more people on Orkney 5,000 years ago than there are today. And it was in a very important community in the megalithic times. And you've got some quite impressive structures that go back older than the Egyptian pyramids. Yes, Rick, that's correct. We, we have some very old structures and the population was almost double that it, it was today. So you're probably looking at about maybe 40, 45,000 people uh, that would have inhabited most of the islands of the 70. Today, there's only 21 inhabited. The types of ancient structures that we have, we have some huge stone circles, the standing stones of Stennis and the Ring of Brodga. 
These are called Henge monuments, like Stonehenge, but they predate Stonehenge by at least a thousand years. We also have Scarabray, which is an incredible Neolithic uh, village, one of the best uh, preserved villages in Northwest Europe. It's incredible. I'll never forget walking with you, and you're six foot seven, and I'm six foot two, and we both bent down low as people have for five thousand years to climb through this passageway and come into this domed, corbelled room, which was a, a tomb so many millennia ago, and it just it overwhelmed me with wonder. Kinley, there's so much to see and do on your fascinating corner of the British Isles. Where would you take me to dinner, period, if you wanted to just really show off Orkney? Well, I think probably my favorite place to go for dinner is a place called Helge's. Helge's is a pub in Kirkwall that's got a Viking style to it. All the beers are incredible Viking-orientated type beers and meats. does incredible food and it overlooks the Kirkwall Harbour. It's extremely popular with the locals and the food is always excellent as is the service. It's got a great Viking-type atmosphere. Well, Kinley Francis, thank you so much for joining us. You've just picked my curiosity, and I just want to wish you and your family uh, best wishes as you uh, enjoy your corner of Britain and as you entertain the curious travelers who come to visit. Thank you so much, Rick. I really appreciate all your time. Are you up for a good long walk? In a bit, the author of a book about nomads tells us about wandering. It's just human nature. But first, urban design expert Jeff Speck explains how major European cities have been making their streets more pedestrian-friendly. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Americans might go to a European city for art or the history or the food, but chances are they'll come away impressed by Europe's pedestrian-friendly urban cores, efficient mass transit, and inviting public squares. And when they return home, they might wonder why we don't have cities like that here that are more pedestrian-friendly. Jeff Speck is an urban planner who's dedicated his career to determining what makes a city a place where people can thrive. He joins us now to consider how Europeans are creatively and successfully creating walkable cities. Jeff's book is Walkable City, and in this book he contends that Americans can and should learn from Europeans to make our cities more pedestrian-friendly. Jeff, thanks for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure to be on a show that I enjoy. Oh, good. Well, I am so interested in this topic, and, you know, I've been spending 100 days a year in Europe ever since I was a kid, and there has been a huge revolution going on there in city planning, and i got to say it's bad news for those who insist on driving their cars, isn't it? Well, um, yes and no. It's bad news for those who choose to continue to drive their cars uh, in the face of measures that make it more difficult for them to do so. However, uh, I would say the quality of life for most folks in those cities has been increasing at a steady clip as more and more people realize they can uh, live more healthful and happy lives driving their cars a bit less. Oh, yeah. If I think of cities, Munich, Copenhagen, Paris, you name it, um, 20, 30 years ago, the squares were parking lots. Today, the squares have a subway station, maybe a bus station, and um, there are parks, there are green spaces. Uh, Tell us about, in general the evolution of city planning in Europe in the time that you've been studying it? Well, you know, I was in Holland in the 1970s as a very young person. Uh, I do remember biking was already more of a thing there than it was here, but the city was awash in, in motor vehicles. And now I look back at the pictures and, you know, the Netherlands and basically Northern Europe in the 1970s looked pretty much like the U.S. I mean, the cars were a bit smaller, but it was the same scene. Yeah. 
cars piled I on was, top of cars. I was up against the wall with thin sidewalks. Yeah. And being crushed against the wall, I felt like when I walked around in cities a couple decades ago. Well, I was hit by a mirror in Florence once because those sidewalks were about 18 inches across, that's, I remember. That's right. Uh, it wasn't that bad, but it was certainly noticeable. But, that... you know, you mentioned Amsterdam. I was just in Amsterdam, and there's a big, wide, former street that had three or four lanes of, uh, you know, car traffic. And it, it occurred to me, whoa, this street is totally different now. There's no cars on it. It's generally green. There are four rails for two tram cars and red paved bike lanes and cobbled walking lanes and the sound of birds. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm willing to bet that the number of people per minute who are going about their daily lives and getting where they need to go in the bike lanes is probably 20 times what's in the car lanes. And certainly the tram lanes are are equally yeah. efficient. What What's really remarkable when you compare uh, different modes of transport that, to which we dedicate space in cities is uh, how do you move the most people most efficiently? Because automobiles, right. you know, in which everyone is surrounded by two tons of metal uh, and, a, and a ton of space are really a super inefficient way to get around and, in fact, are, are really anti-city. Uh, Lewis mm-hmm. Mumford, writing back in the middle of the 20th century, said... Uh, the right to uh, bring a motor car to any address in a city is the right to destroy a city, and we've seen that happen. Wow. And in cities all over Europe now, they have what's called a congestion fee. And unless you live there or have a special license for your car, if you'd go past that line into the center, you, you have a bill to pay. And I understand in London, that has decreased the traffic congestion in the streets, and it has subsidized public transportation— And people are now able to get around faster and cheaper with more affordable public transit that gets there quicker because the cars have been incentivized by that congestion fee not to go downtown. Well, what's really interesting, Rick, is that when you use congestion pricing, or we call it decongestion pricing, in cities, actually more people are able to access the city by vehicle. And that's a bit counterintuitive. But what happens, of course, is that the highways and other streets get so overloaded that no one's getting anywhere. And what they found in a number of of European cities uh, like Stockholm and London and others is that more people were getting better use out of the roads simply by charging a price for travel that mirrored the value of that travel. Uh, With with cars driving and certainly with cars parking in our cities, we have one of the rare aspects of our society in which it's actively socialist in terms of you're not paying the right price for the value. And when you allow the market to do its work, actually you get more efficient cities. And drivers think they have some right to get that subsidy, and maybe they need to be retrained. Jeff Speck is joining us from his office in Brookline, Massachusetts, on Travel with Rick Steves as we look at how to make even your city into a more people-friendly environment. Jeff has been consulting American cities such as Hammond, Elkhart, Carmel, and New Albany in Indiana, Grand Rapids, Cedar Rapids, Tampa and Pensacola, Florida, Lowell and Somerville, Mass., and even Oklahoma City on ways to revitalize decaying downtowns and introduce pedestrian-friendly walkways that can bring people together. He wrote Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. It's considered a city planning classic, and it's been reissued in a revised edition. So, Jeff, let's talk about a couple of cities in Europe. When you, as a city planner, go to Paris, what strikes you as innovative and something you'd like to take home? Well, um... Mayor Hidalgo is famous. Marie Hidalgo has been the mayor of Paris for some time. You know, she's a strong socialist. She has uh, done a number of things that you would think would have ended her reign, 
Um, but she was reelected on the mandate of many more people supporting what she's doing than are against it, despite some of the very visible protests. But she really has said, we are going to build a car-free uh, center city. They're essentially removing cars almost entirely from the central part of that city is the plan over time. She's got 100, 870 miles of new bike lanes she's put in, uh, tens of thousands of parking spaces that she's gotten rid of. Uh, she's also backing a 200 million euro plan to turn the Champs-Élysées, you've probably seen the drawings, into this multimodal linear garden. It will wow. still have cars in it, but just many fewer cars moving, moving more slowly, uh, bike lanes, walking lanes, thousands of new trees. So she basically, even before the pandemic, but she responded the, to the pandemic by saying, wow, you know, we can hear the birds now. We can breathe fresh air now. Shouldn't the city be like this all the time? And, and she's been reelected on that mandate. And something travelers really are struck by and, and delighted by is what's called the Paris Plage, the Paris Beach. And there's that two-lane highway along the Seine River that is just, you'd think it'd be critical to move the traffic around because you've got busy, busy lanes going uh, fast without any stop signs and so on along the river. And suddenly, that is no longer accessible to cars. And in the summer, they fill it with sand and they move in palm trees and uh, you've got a beach. And um, yeah, Great success. A, a big success. And for me, it's brought in a lot of vitality. The city no longer turns its back on the, on the river, but they pull up a lounge chair and enjoy the river. Yep. And it's great for biking. It's great for entertainment. It's great for restaurants. And it's not great for people who want to drive everywhere. But again, I would I would say it could be great for those people. They just don't need to drive. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Let's talk about Barcelona because Barcelona is a very interesting uh, city in its design. You know, they've got uh, the Eixample district is, to me, wonderful. They've got this... Um, well, you mentioned in your book the importance of having um, shorter blocks and um, more compact. The blocks in Barcelona are very small. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them, the Cerda plan that's famous for those chamfered blocks that you're uh, probably familiar with, where every block has this little chamfered corner. So every intersection is a little uh, diamond-shaped square. I it's love a fantastic that. I didn't, the, district. I didn't know the name of it, but that is what I think of when I think of Barcelona. Yeah, Cerda was the uh, urban designer. And uh, it's one of the densest places in the world. In fact, among the dense European cities, it may be the densest. But they did something remarkable that, of course, their plan helped them to do. Um, but most cities have grid plans that will allow this, was they introduced something called the superblock scheme. And if you can picture a tic-tac-toe board, a uh, nine square, where the, the hashtag uh, is the interior streets, on a whole bunch of their nine squares, they shut all of those blocks to through traffic. So they might have allowed them to make an L. They might have put in bollards temporarily. You know, people who live there have ways to get in and out. But they, they ceased to be part of the regional transportation system for uh, that part of the city. And it was a miracle. People who fought it uh, ended up loving it. And they've added more and more superblocks to Barcelona since they and these started. And these are sort of self-contained neighborhoods almost where you can walk to everything you need. It's, it's quite, quite remarkable. Yeah, and, and the, you know, I think the difference is in the U.S., uh, people love to snip their blocks to through traffic, but then, then the, the streets on the perimeter get wider and wider yeah. <laughs> in, in a response. In Barcelona, there was no corresponding enlargement of any other streets. It just created a circumstance in which more people were happy walking and biking, and therefore there were fewer people driving and a happier outcome. Yeah, 
You know, when we talk about happier outcomes all over Europe, I'm finding cities are are embracing this idea of naked streets. It seems like insane to have no signs at an intersection, but apparently it really works. Well, the uh, the famous uh, engineer who came up with that concept used to uh, stand in front of the cameras and then walk backwards into his naked intersections as they were filming. And uh, we would observe as the cars would uh, swerve around him very slowly. But the this idea of um, the, Malcolm Gladwell calls it risk homeostasis. And he talks about how every human is comfortable living with a certain amount of risk and they will actually adjust their behavior to enjoy that level of risk. And so when you create an intersection that is so clear and easy to understand, people just speed right through it. And the European uh, response is to make things a little more confusing so that each intersection is approached with care. Um, Some have suggested the American equivalent would be that when you get into the middle of a city in your car, your seatbelt pops off and a spike appears on the steering wheel. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Well, that you would stop. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're, we're getting radical with city design here with Jeff Speck. And it's not radical in Europe, but it sure seems radical where I'm sitting here in the United States. Well, don't States. tell my clients that. I mean, I'm working in, in Scranton. I'm working in Maui, uh, Orlando, uh, <laughs> Hyannis, Massachusetts. And uh, they they uh, hopefully don't believe that I'm radical. What, what we're doing is we're <laughs> sharing... We're sharing best practices that yeah. have succeeded not only in Europe, but in a, in a bunch of American cities, as you've observed in the Pacific Northwest, you know, where a lot of great gains have been made towards making cities more walkable. And it's exciting to know there are people like you uh, working on this very diligently. Jeff's the city planner, and he's the author of Walkable City. Jeff, tell me a little bit about this uh, notion I read in, in your book, Walkable City, where you don't even have curbs. What you have is uh, bricks that go from building to building all the way across the street, so you don't know what's really pedestrian and, and what's for cars. Well, that's called um, shared space. And the ultimate example of it, which you can find a video on YouTube called Poynton Regenerated, P-O-Y-N-T-O-N. Poynton is a city in, in England um, where they did that. They had a downtown that was just dying from too much traffic. There was a sense of just congestion and danger. And they basically put in kind of a, what I would call a peanut about, like a double roundabout, where the whole thing was pavered and cobbled and uh, removed all the signals. Um, But this idea of creating streets that are plazas, that are paved from edge to edge like plazas, um, in which everyone's expected to, to mix at extremely low speed is appropriate in certain dense, you know, downtown centers mm-hmm. and town centers. I have uh, only worked on one project that was able to pull that off because it does not sit comfortably within the manuals of the American traffic engineering profession. But um, mm-hmm. more and more American cities are interested in, in creating these spaces. Now, part of the, the challenge, I would imagine, is giving people who really are committed to driving from city to city a convenient way and an economic way to get out of their car and then become a walking visitor. And in Europe, there are it's pretty routine now where you have the city ringed by government-subsidized, um, inexpensive parking lots that come with a shuttle bus that takes you into the center or um, a parking lot by a suburban uh, subway station, and then you just leave your car, hop on the train, go downtown, and you get around with public transit or with a, one of these cheap rental out-of-the-bike-rack kind of public bicycles or uh, just walking around. Um, what's your take on these park-and-ride kind of approaches? Well, I, I think that 
you, you have to make it worth it for people. So it works in Europe and in a few limited American places because the walk, once you get out of your car, is actually a better experience than driving. Uh, I have in my book what I call the general theory of walkability, in which I talk about the fact that uh, if people are going to make the choice to walk in America, the walk has to be better than, than the drive. And to do that, it has to satisfy four things simultaneously. It has to be useful, it has to be safe, it has to be comfortable, and it has to be interesting. Hmm. And if you can accomplish those four things, in most American cities, it's just a small portion of the city where that is possible because you have the mixed use to begin with, right? Uh, a walk being useful means that you're in a mixed-use area with a proper balance of most of the aspects of daily life, and not many of our neighborhoods pull that off. But in our in our older neighborhoods, particularly our older commercial neighborhoods, our central business districts and our old downtowns, um, main streets, that's where that usefulness is possible. And if it, if it exists, then you then you just supplement that by making the streets safe, which is actually the easiest thing to do because the cities own the streets. So the mm -hmm. cities can very quickly restripe their streets mm -hmm. to make them safer and more multimodal, welcoming bikes and transit. And then the longer slog is the comfortable and interesting uh, part of the discussion because that's basically the outcome of what buildings, what private buildings mostly are lining the streets and are they um, shaping the space in a proper way. As an urban designer, I spend a lot of time thinking about the shape of the space. We like to make our streets as outdoor living rooms. And what does that mean? It means they have good edges. It means they really hold you comfortably. So we spend a lot of time on that. Jeff Speck is with us on Travel with Rick Steves as we look at examples for turning cities into walkable, people-friendly spaces. Jeff's 2012 book, Walkable City, is the best-selling city planning book of the past decade and is out in an updated edition. He's also written Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. Jeff's TED Talks and YouTube videos on the topic have been viewed by millions. His website is specdempsey.com. Jeff, it's been so much fun talking to you. We're just about out of time, but I'd love to let you be the tour guide right now. And with your ability to see things through the eyes and the sensibilities of a city planner, what can we travelers do to enjoy our visits to whatever city we're going to, let's say in Europe, um, a little bit more? What do you look for and how can that help us? Well, I'll, I'll give you one tip, which I use myself, which I think anyone is capable of doing which is whenever I'm about to book a hotel in a foreign city, particularly a European city, I'll go on the Google Maps and I'll find the medieval neighborhood. That's the neighborhood where the streets are cranky, where they're narrow, where the blocks are tiny. You know, sometimes the best hotels, you know, the Hotel de Ville or whatever, are located in the Enlightenment part of town or the Beaux-Arts part of town. And, and those can all be great to see for spectacle and for uh, energy or for monuments. But it's always the medieval part of the city that's the most walkable, most delightful, most mysterious, that has the, the tiny shops that can only hold a non-chain store, uh, the special mom-and-pop places. I always find those neighborhoods for my hotel. I can think of several towns right now where that's exactly the case. Uh, Barcelona's Gothic Quarter is a perfect example, Rome's medieval quarter. And what's fun is even American cities have our, you know, the oldest ones, we have a Gothic quarter, or so it would seem, in Boston, in, in New York City. You know, Wall Street yeah. is that place. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, our older cities have those as well here. Jeff Speck, thanks so much for joining us, and happy travels, and let's all hope for a more walkable urban world. Thanks, Rick. It's been great to uh, join you here. They're living just enough.
You'll find web links to our guests in the notes for each week's show at ricksteves.com radio. If city life gets to be a little too much for you, maybe you'd rather just get out of town. Well, up next, we'll look at how the wanderers among us, outsiders in nomadic communities, have often been a sort of counterbalance to the great empires of human history. Anthony Satin explains next on Travel with Rick Steves. I've long been fascinated by nomads. I've encountered them in my travels, the Bedouins in Morocco and Palestine, Kurds in Turkey, Sami people in Scandinavia, Roma, and I've wondered about how the cards are stacked against any group of people who don't want to settle down, who don't want to own land and build fences and send their children to the same school as everybody else so they can fit into the mold as dedicated by the dominant settled culture. The urge to move exists within all of us, yet half of the world's population lives in cities. The nomadic societies that played a key role in shaping our history had no written history, and today most of them are gone. Anthony Satin digs deep into this overlooked side of history and how the mobile and settled have come together and diverged through the centuries. It's all in his book, Nomads, the Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. Anthony joins us today to talk about the nomadic societies in and around Europe. Anthony, thanks so much for being with us. Rick, thanks for having me on the show. So is it true that nomadic people never wrote down their own history? Yeah, almost never. It, it's an oral tradition, and, and that's part of the sort of the, the makeup of, of their internal relations. Everybody gathers together and they tell stories. When you travel in and around Europe, I'm talking Europe, I'm talking North Africa, the Middle East, and so on, you're very likely to encounter these cultures, maybe not under the stars at a tent at an oasis, but in a market or semi-nomadic settled and so on. What's the state of the, the Bedouin people in, in North Africa and the Middle East? The big news is they're still there, and there's still quite a lot of them. Um, they're, you know, they're always under, under threat. Government's always wanting to make them settle and offering these two carrots of education for the kids and health care for the, for the elderly. But the one constant is that they keep on doing what they've always done, and that is moving around. Less of them than there were, but they're still doing it. You know, I suppose that's easier for them to do that where they move around because it's deserts and that's, people don't really want that land anyway, so they're free to roam it. Yeah, the majority, of the majority of our planet is not good for agriculture, so the majority of the planet is good for, for herding. So, yeah, it, there's plenty of space for them to keep on doing it if governments will let them, let them take on that land. And, you, you know, you mentioned up in the frozen north and down in the hot south, but unfortunately for a lot of nomads, there's, there's gold in them, their hills. Yeah, that can change all of a sudden. That's the story of the U.S. as well. You know, the, the Western tribes, you know, in the, in the U.S. in the 19th century lost out because of the gold rush. You know, one of the most fascinating courses I ever had when I was at the University of Washington was based on a book called Reflections on the Basic Causes of Human Misery. It was a fascinating <laughs> book. And the, the takeaway was the most unmiserable societies were people who lived on land that nobody wanted. And also who, who lived in a bonded community like that with, with a narrative. And in a way, this thing about oral history is important because so many of us and in so many different countries I go to have, have lost that sense of a shared narrative of who we are. Now, in, in uh, Turkey, there are a lot of Kurds. And I understand the word Kurd actually comes from the, the root for the word for nomad. There's like tens of millions of these Kurds in, in eastern Turkey. It's one of the largest, you could call it, nations without states they don't have their own boundary. They're not able to have their own government, but they're still 
thriving in eastern Turkey, it seems like, as a community. What is your take on the Kurds? Well, uh, this is a really hot potato <laughs> politically, yeah. um, and but not just in, in Turkey, but in, in Iraq as well. Um, yeah. know, the Kurds fought... Kurdistan. Uh, you don't want to say that word Kurdistan in certain circles. No, exactly. Exactly. But you have to wonder uh, what happened after the First World War when, you know, when the British and the French were carving up the Middle East. There, yeah. they, there were the states for the Arabs. There was talk about Armenia for the Armenians. But the Kurds, no, silence. It's just silence. draw the line and silence, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it is because they're nomadic peoples and they're the tent dwellers rather than the, the town or city dwellers. And, and that's the problem. Okay, so we've got lots of Kurds. And then uh, Sami, there's like, I think, 100,000 uh, people up in, in the Arctic of Scandinavia who make their living basically herding reindeer. That's right. That's right. But I think they are more integrated and more and and sort of more happily in in connection with certainly in Sweden with the with the government there. Probably because the government is more progressive and sensitive to their needs. Certainly, and also because there's a there's a recognition of there's there's a value to herding reindeer. And I mean, I write in my book about the Bakhtiari in in Iran. I mean, nomads in Iran produce a significant amount of meat. You know, because they've got they've got all these sheep millions of them and and they sell them into market so it's a, you know this is this is an important part of the Iranian economy it's almost part of the environment the ecosystem is to have people taking care of the sheep so they thrive yeah exactly no but the problem is this long long historical view and the reason why i wrote this book is because in our histories our histories are simply not fit for purpose because they don't reflect the reality of the relationship between the nomadic and settled people, which is one of mutual dependence. We're looking at the underappreciated side of history with author Anthony Satin right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's the author of Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World, as well as earlier historical titles on Egypt and North Africa. From his own travels, Anthony's collected stories from 12,000 years of nomadic societies, most recently with Bakhtiari nomads in Iran. Anthony's own wanderings have led him to Umbria in Italy, where he's joining us from his home studio. I want to get more into the specifics about nomadic culture, but there's two groups I want to finish in our survey before we dive into that, and that is Irish travelers, or tinkers, and the Roma, or the gypsy community. First of all, when we go to Ireland, Anthony... You just can't help but run into comments or references to the travelers. Who are these people? And is that is that actually a community like we're talking about the Samis and the Kurds and the Bedouins? Yes, it is still a community. I mean, a shrinking community, but it's definitely still a community. And, and we have them in, you know, in England as well. There, there, are, tra- mm-hmm. there are travelers and they, they move around and they traditionally they had at least for the last 50 years in my lifetime. They were people who would deal in in all sorts of sort of things that people, other people didn't want to deal with, scrap metal or whatever it was. They were functioning on the fringe of communities, literally, and on the fringe of economy. Historically, do we have something like that in the United States? You have your great Native American tribes in the United States. Well, apart from that, because, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking you're talking about not an ethnic group so much as just a society that would rather have a nomadic lifestyle and sell scrap metal or something. Oh, yeah. No, but you, but you still do have, in, in the United States, a vast number of people who choose to live in what was called wheel estate rather than real estate. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the movie Nomadland absolutely pins that story brilliantly. There's, there there's, you go. Wheel estate. I've never heard that. That's great. It's a good <laughs> line. <laughs> one, more, one more reason to read your book, Nomads, the Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. The final uh, European group of nomadic people I'd like to mention is the Roma or the Gypsies. 
what's the story with the, the, the Roma people? The Roma people are, are a people. They're, I mean, unlike sort of Irish tinkers or whatever, who are more of a, not such an ethnic group as, as an occupation. The Roma are an ethnic group and they, well, their origins are, are somewhat obscure, but it probably came from India originally, but a long, long mm -hmm. time ago. And they can trace their history back at least to the Roman Empire, and that's partly their, their name, and, and from Romania. But mm -hmm. they, are, they are not well received in most places where, where they're found. All European societies were nomadic at first, and they eventually settled down and bought land and made fences and, and changed from herders to farmers. Is what the difference with the Roma community is they just never decided to morph into that, which fits better into the modern mold. So they've been a disadvantaged group because they've held on to those pre-settled ways. Yeah, absolutely. And and maybe another way of looking at them is is with a, an element of fascination, um, as in they are part of our story, as it all nomads yeah. are. This oh, is the way amazing, we all live I, once. I've visited fascinating Roma communities in Romania. A big question for me lately is, I'm I'm just perplexed with the proper term. Of course, we've all grown up saying gypsies, and now I understand Roma is the preferred term. Do the Roma people... Are they unified in this desire to change the name? Of course, gypsies is a misnomer, uh, you know, because it's, it says they're from Egypt when they weren't from Egypt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but do all Roma consider gypsy to be derogatory? I think there's a, there is a sense of, yeah, that it's, you know, it has the wrong connotation for them. I mean, you, you don't often hear people sort of waxing lyrical about the gypsy. No, but that's because people have given that up to the notion they're all thieves and, and so on. And, you know, when you go to Spain... You got a, a pride in the gypsy community. There's a group called the Gypsy Kings. You, you go to Granada, which is a it's got fifty thousand gypsies, I think, and they call themselves gypsies. Yeah, the whole flamenco culture comes out of out of that gypsy. Yeah, gypsy I mean, culture. you wouldn't say a, a Roma cave in Granada. You'd say a gypsy no, cave. No, exactly, that's true. So I don't know. It's an it's a complicated thing. Anthony Satin is a fellow with the Royal Geographic Society, and he's hosted TV and radio documentaries on travel for the BBC. We're talking with him right now on Travel with Rick Steves about his most recent book, Nomads. His website is anthonysatin.com, spelled S-A-T-T-I-N. So, Anthony, basically, why do nomads wander? No. <laughs> the real question is, why do we not all wander? Wandering is our natural state. Uh, you know, <laughs> we we make a journey at the beginning of our life from the womb to the light. And, and and religion tells us we make a journey at the end of our life. All religions tell us we make a journey at the end of our life to the other world. And in between, some of us choose not to move. And it's just such a strange thing. <laughs> yes. Well, that's very fundamental. So that really divides us. And as you mentioned in your book, a uh, long, 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 long time ago, there were 40 million nomadic people. And today, and that was 100% of humanity, apparently. And today there's 40 million nomadic people, but it's less than 1% of humanity. So there's as many wanderers today as there was 12,000 years ago. Is that right? Yeah. And, and think about, you know, the weirdness of living a, a subtle life where we, we're constantly being told we have to walk 10,000 steps. I mean, this, ah. to, to a nomad, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. Imagine a nomad with a little, a, a little wristwatch that showed how many steps he's going to do. <laughs> exactly. you think you're, you're a nutcase. Hey, I'm curious about just the way nomadic societies work. And I would imagine this is pretty much consistent across the board. Gender roles. Briefly, what are the traditional gender roles with a nomadic community? Well, this is one of the surprises that I found looking back into history uh, and these three 
famous nomads that we can name check who get this bad reputation. They tell her the Hun, Genghis Khan and, and Timur or Tamburlaine. And for them, women are absolutely central to all the decision-making, all the sort of gathering of, of, of the grandees and the elders. There are women. And, you know, Genghis Khan's wife is, is the one who, you know, it sits beside him the whole way through the building up of his and administration of his empire. And that plays through to, to today in, in a lot, if not all, nomadic societies. Women have a central role. You know, here is a very interesting moment or image that might represent what you're saying. I was in eastern Turkey hanging out with a Kurdish nomadic family in their black hair tent, right? They have these black goat hair tents, like go all the way back to biblical times. The mother was there with the children, and the, the little boy was playing his eagle bone flute. And this was amazing just to see the mom making the, the tea and, and the boy playing his eagle bone flute. And then over the bluff, way in the distance, I couldn't see him, the dad would play his eagle bone flute. So the boy knew the dad was okay, the dad knew the boy was okay, and the dad was out of sight with the herds, and the mom was in the tent with the kids, and the eagle bone flute was connecting them and connecting through times for millennia, literally thousands of years. But that kind of represented the fundamental situation, and it seems that has not changed very much through the centuries. No, and how beautiful is that as an image? Well, I mean, that's, I've, got, I've got goosebumps for that. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I do too. I so love beautiful. that. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so thankful for that moment. And to, to know that, that what I was listening to was so representative of a beautiful, beautiful way of life that is struggling in the confines of our modern kind of um, settled world. Well, it's struggling, but it's still there. And, that's, and this is the important thing. And it hasn't gone there's this, this image that I love of history as a path picked through ruins. And the, the suggestion that, you know, history is about people who build things, who build, you know, the pyramids, the, yeah. the, the Colosseum or whatever. But I think before long, we're going to be reading histories about the people, not who built monuments or destroyed them, but about the people who maintained the natural world around them. Yes. There's an ever greater value in people that are connected with the natural world as, as it becomes an existential challenge to preserve it. You know, when I was with that Kurdish community, we were talking about the challenges in their life. And they talked about how the Turkish government had offered them land, offered them schools, trying to get them almost to bribe them to settle down and speak the same language and, and join the dominant culture. And they really found it was really offensive to their their own what they treasured and honored and they refused it. And that's kind of the disadvantage that nomadic communities have around the world, isn't it? That in order to be embraced by the dominant culture, they've really got to abandon theirs. It is a problem. And, and language is absolutely key to that. Because in a way, the language, and, and I know this, for instance, with some of the um, Saharan tribes, in, in Egypt, for instance, they're forced to speak and learn uh, Egyptian Arabic, which deprives them of their dialect. Oh, yes. And that's something that those of us who don't have to struggle to preserve our language aren't very sensitive to. But if a society is not allowed to have its own language, that is over the line. I mean, that cannot be allowed. They've got to defend the right to speak their language. Exactly. And But, you know, I, I wonder, I mean, in the U.S., the Native American languages, are, are, they, still, are they still current? Do people still talk them? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that when there's a struggle with an ethnic group in Europe that is a nation without a state, a group of people that, that have their nation, but they don't have a political boundary, 
the, the bone of contention is a lot of time, can we have education for our people? And I know for indigenous people in Central America, you know, the government of Guatemala will give them an education, but it's Spanish. And they say, no, we want it in our language. And they don't get it, so they, they become an underclass. That's problematic. <laughs> Very problematic. So this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Anthony Satin, and his book is Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. I've been fascinated by nomads ever since I've been traveling because as you travel, if you reach out, you find the resilience of the nomadic communities and the deep history and, and how there is this little do do between the people who are unsettled, nomads, and people who are settled, what we would call civilized, which is a horribly ethnocentric way to put it. Today, Anthony, we're out of time, but I would just like to kind of wrap it up with what is the future for nomadic peoples? Is there a sort of a best scenario? And is it possible to have culturally sensitive tourism? Can that be a good thing? I don't think things are as bleak as they might be for for a lot of nomadic peoples. I think they're even more than we've talked about politics and how governments like to settle and probably even more dangerous for them is global warming, climate change. For instance, in Mongolia, which has a long, long tradition of nomadic people because most of the country is un, unfit for farming, because of the summers are now so hot and the winters are mm. so cold, a lot of uh, Mongolia's nomads are now living, you know, given up, and they, there's now a tent city around the capital, and they're all looking for, for jobs. That, you know, that, so that's, that's their greatest I, greatest. I think threat. you see the same dynamic in Palestine with the Bedouins. Yes, exactly. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. But, but, you know, at the same time, you know, they are still doing what they do, and they are still who they are. And I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm That's optimistic encouraging. for them. And then just if we're curious, as, as people who want to have a broader perspective and, and learn from our travels, is there a culturally sensitive way to, um, and can that bring economy in a healthy way to these communities, to um, weave that into our travels as tourists? Yes, I think it, I think it, it obviously has to be Small scale, low key. Mm-hmm. Um, can't have thousands of people turning up and, and hanging out with one particular family in a in yeah, their tent. It becomes then it becomes a more of a spectacle instead of a exactly. Change. But um, you know, but I, I mean, some of the families that I stayed with in in Iran, for instance, I mean, that was entirely transactional. That was you know, I was I was a paying guest. It was like staying you know staying in someone's home, mm-hmm. except their home was a tent. Again, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Anthony Satin. His book is Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. Anthony, thank you so much for your interest in uh, nomadic communities and for sharing it so eloquently in your book. Thank you for this opportunity of, of talking about this really important topic. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Court upload the shows to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find links to our guests, listen to a podcast version of the show, and search the archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine a community of well-traveled friends who love sharing tips and comparing notes. That's our online community. It's called the Rick Steves Travel Forum. You can read trip reports, reviews, and share itinerary planning questions. Peruse the topics or post your own submissions. It's at ricksteves.com and you're invited.